My name is John Chafee. I was trained as a pastor and this is one of the ways in which I try to do something good with that education. This is Begin Again. So if you are looking for a nuanced or interesting take on the Jesus tradition and all of its wisdom and all of its perplexity and mystery, then you found the right place. I sincerely hope that this helps you to rethink some things, to maybe grow in your own way for health and holiness, for your benefit and for the benefit of those around you. So again, welcome to Begin Again. Well, this morning we have uh, Shane Claiborne yet again. This time was a topic that uh, he suggested, talking about the Constitution as inspired. But good morning, Shane. Thanks for being part of this. <laughs> good, good morning, man. Yeah. We, uh, I, I, again, I'm like, a, I guess I'm a regular on this jam here, and uh, I might, yeah. I might need a raise. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you, you might need a raise. <laughs> I started this actually for some of the people that I knew when hiking the Appalachian Trail back in 2015. I took a break from ministry and people were like, we love sitting around the bonfire talking with you, but um, can you make something that we could keep listening to you? So I was like, oh, okay. So most people that listen to this might be church folk, but actually I think the majority don't step foot in a church. So that's kind of fun. How about that? I know that backdrop. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, in Appalachia. Yeah, I've done some pieces of the Appalachian Trail and uh, done a little bit of uh, sitting around the campfire too. So it's awesome, man. Well, you're a Tennessee boy. So that's mm -hmm. right there. Hey, you know, what I just found out my feet. I mean, I knew that my people are from the hills. They're buried in like the Smoky <laughs> Mountains, Cades Cove. We wrote, uh -huh. we, we grew up, my, my uh, great, great grandparents lived right next to Dolly Parton and her family and stuff. That's awesome. And, um, uh, but I just found out my 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 folk my like cousins are on the Moonshine Show. <laughs> yeah, so, of course they are. So my family's moonshiners, and now they're celebrity moonshiners. So how about oh that? Oh my gosh! Okay, <laughs> that's a pretty good call to fame. <clears throat> well, well, so there was this really profound moment. I got to say, my lady and I we were watching uh, the January sixth hearings as I'm sure you were for most of it. And we riveting. Came, yeah. <laughs> and we came to that one evening in which the Arizona House, Rusty Bowers, said that he would not break against the Constitution and that to break against the Constitution was an article of faith for him because the Constitution was inspired we both looked at each other and it was it was profound because I've heard those types of comments before, but I think that was the first time I personally had ever seen it on national television, someone saying that the Constitution was inspired. And I actually know, because <clears throat> I remember this, I think it was, was it HarperCollins or another publisher about a year and a half ago tried to put out a Bible that had the Constitution as an appendix <laughs> And I, I think I sent something to them, and I believe uh -huh. you did as well. And then they decided to discontinue an edition of the Bible that had an appendix that was the Constitution. Unlike the same type of paper, it was wild. So what do you have to say about <laughs> Rusty Bowers, Bibles that have constitutions in them, the Constitution has inspired what you got? Ooh, yeah, let's get into it. Well, <laughs> so first of all, I think it does help explain some things uh, that a number of our politicians would like to add the Constitution to mm -hmm. the canon of Holy Scripture. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, uh, it does explain some things, uh, but it is very alarming. You know, as much as I laugh, I'm also really concerned about the state of our country. And um, uh, there are we've hosted all kinds of forums on, you know, what's become known as Christian nationalism. Yeah. And um, 
but you know, those are big words. I think what it means is this new iteration of an ancient uh, tendency, which mm -hmm. is con to conflate worldly power with the kingdom of God, right? And okay. and and also to um, like like what what is our role in the world? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, so so we can talk about Jesus because I think he's a like absolute critique and contrast and paradox mm -hmm. of all of that. But the folks that are studying Christian nationalism, Robbie Jones and Andrew Whitehead, Samuel Perry, so many of these scholars, one of the there's a few like little handholds, you know, or indicators that they use. One of them is, do you believe that the founding documents of America are the like inspired word of God? Like, do you think like God really crafted these? Um, humans with God's help. But that's how we yeah. also think of scripture, right? That's exactly how we think of scripture. So, um, but another one is, um, does America have a unique, exceptional, uh, mm -hmm. kind of holy vocation um, in the world when it comes to um, the, the, the history making, you know, and, and you end up, what's so dangerous about it is you end up with this theology of America uh, of, of American exceptionalism, of America as God's messianic force uh, for change in the world. And that's why, you know, Jesus begins to get contorted and in, and in, um, in order to to be to fit in that box. You know, so we literally, oh, okay. I keep, you know, if folks haven't seen this, like we literally have politicians saying if Jesus had had an AR-15, oh, right. that, then this might have ended differently for him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Kristen was... Dumay from Jesus and John Wayne, she says, you know, the, the most troubling thing is not that Christians think Donald Trump is their savior. It's actually that they wish the savior, Jesus, was more like Donald wow. Trump. Uh, and so you begin to kind of uh, reinvent Jesus. Um, and and, and wow. I think it's the, the, the definition of idolatry. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh, I, but it is helpful to realize that this is a new manifestation of it. But it's a really old thing. I, like the imperial cult was as old as Jesus. You know, it existed before Jesus, this kind of yeah. worshiping of empire, this sense that um, our emperor or king or president mm -hmm. or prime minister is divinely uh, anointed. I mean, that's, that's a, a religious word now, but it was the exact word that they used for the emperor, you know, 2000 years ago. And it meant anointed means dripped on by God, mm -hmm. right? Like they, they had this right. special uh, holiness about them. Um, and of course, uh, that that's where I think Jesus got in trouble from the day he was born. <laughs> yeah. Well, <clears throat> isn't that part of it that um, we tend to want to maybe spiritualize Jesus a little too much, or maybe we spiritualize Jesus in the wrong way. And there's this underlying current that I know. I hope this doesn't go into much into the weeds. I once had someone ask me, John, do you believe in the atonement theory? And I said, which one? And they had no idea that there was a multiplicity of angles of ways that people thought about the crucifixion. And I said, yeah, we need to recognize the tradition has said all of them, but then said, we also need to pay attention to the fact that Jesus was crucified by the religious and the political leaders of his day. And that was the vehicle by which the crucifixion happened. And so I said, we have to recognize that Jesus challenged the religious system and the political system of his day, which was absolutely in step with the prophets. It wasn't a full affirmation of a religious system, a full affirmation of political system. He was a critique, a critic of it from the start. And uh, I think that that might be something that I've seen missing from some of the Jesus dialogue is Jesus was actually standing in the lineage of the prophets. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it, we, we, you know, wrestled with some of this in our book, Jesus for president, that's the name of it, you know, yeah. and uh, in fact, um, 
<laughs> Zondervan is uh, re-releasing it, John. They think there's a fresh, exciting new market for it, which is awesome. Oh, really? <laughs> but I think a lot of people might cover, you might pick it up thinking it says something different. You know, but, a great book. Uh, but, you know, Jesus for President, we really wrestled with that. And um, because every time the early Christians were saying Jesus is Lord, they were saying Caesar is not. Like it was a declaration right. of their allegiance. Uh, and these words that we kind of hear as spiritual words, uh, and they're in scripture, uh, words like Lord, Savior, um, the King of Kings, uh, the, even the, the kingdom of God. Um, these were political words. They were ripped right out of the imperial lexicon. You know, they, they were words that, that were always associated with Caesar. And that's why it's such a profound and, you know, 2000 years ago, unmistakable um, declaration of where our allegiance lies. And that's why they were killed. I mean, even Jesus was, yeah. you know, accused of insurrection, um, a different kind of insurrection, you know, but, but it's, it's noteworthy that Jesus had violent, uh, revolutionaries that were following him and he calls that out. You know, uh, there were whole movements of, of violent uprisings around the time of Jesus. Uh, and, Jesus challenges their sword, you know, um, like when, when even Peter, his right-hand man, you know, picks up a sword to protect Jesus when the soldiers try to arrest him. Jesus rebukes him and heals right. the guy that he wounded and makes it crystal clear that we are to love our enemies, uh, even those who are still entrenched. That, you know, as scripture says, our, our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But you see that kind of paradox of power in every element of Jesus's life, right, you know, right. and he's born as a brown skinned Palestinian Jewish refugee in a manger because there's no room in the end. I mean, this is not how right. kings are typically born or, or what they typically look like, you know, um, vulnerable in every way, uh, all the way through his life, especially to the cross where he's suffers the, the most horrific execution we can imagine i mean stripped naked and humiliated nailed to the cross an agonizing death uh but a regular form of torture for the roman empire and yeah. and yeah. so you know as james cone says uh, the the wonderful you know james coney he, he talks about um how this was the empire's public service announcement you know they they put this person on display to absolutely humiliate the worst of the worst and to say, if you do what they did, we'll do the same thing to you. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the death that Jesus dies and puts all of that power on display to subvert it, you know, with love and forgiveness in an empty tomb. But I mean, even as Jesus comes into Passover, he's riding on the back of a donkey. You know, we talk about that Jesus for president. I mean, in every way that he can turn power on its head, he's doing it. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, kings didn't ride donkeys. They wore, they, they rode stallions, war horses with an entourage of soldiers. And Jesus is not only on a donkey, but he, he used a borrowed baby donkey. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like the president driving in and uh, like used, used Pinto he borrowed from right, a neighbor right. or something. Right? But yeah, I think that that's, that's part of the point. Jesus washing feet of the disciples. But all of that's so important right. to our context today, because we have people that are literally uh, gaining, trying to gain the whole world mm. and losing their soul. That's what Jesus said, you know, right. that, that are literally forfeiting their soul for a, a couple of seats on the Supreme Court, you know. And, and so that fight for power um, is exactly what Jesus shows us not to do. I mean, that's the temptation he faces in the very beginning of his, his ministry right. in the desert. Yeah. He, and there was a time when I started going to seminary. I went to the Lutheran seminary over in Germantown just for one semester before I, I transferred to uh, Palmer. And it was great. I had 
a semester deep dive into Lutheran theology. And what I found was even in the Reformation era, they were wrestling with the intersection between church and government. So much so that Luther and then his student Melanchthon, uh, they wrote about the two hands of God. The right hand is that God chooses to create order in the universe through the secular government. And then the left hand, which is beautiful, was the church. And that God prefers to create order in the universe through the left hand that is the church, which is the surprising hand, which is the not dominating hand, which is the, um, I guess one phrasing could be not the hammer, but with the scent of a pie. There's one way of forcing people into conformity, and then there's another way of inviting people into love. And I thought it was interesting that Luther felt the need to say, even then, we don't establish the kingdom of God through force. The church doesn't do that. We're the left hand of God. And it seems like, I mean, even before that, there was the Roman Empire, and then when it turned Christian, it just became the Holy Roman Empire. So this has been an ongoing issue in every century of church. Yeah. Now I I will, I will uh, sort of uh, gently uh, push back on just a little bit of the Luther thing, because I I, I agree. I think he got a lot of things right, but I think um, the, the later ramifications of what happened uh, from the reformation was I know this might, this feels a little seminary-ish for some folks that don't, uh, you know, but I think hang in there y'all, because this is what happened. Luther Uh had some really great critiques of the Catholic church and of the, you know, the papal authority, the abuse of that authority and, you know, all kinds of messed up stuff happening in in the church, abuse of power. Right. Um, but what ended up happening is he kind of transferred that authority in to the state in a way that, um, ended up being uh, a sort of blank check to state power um, mm. as God's ordained hand. Um, and, you know, Romans 13 and, and some of these scriptures that God has ordained all authority, you know, that these things that established all authorities. And you, you end up with this sort of sanctification of state power that I think is different from Paul's own intention and is really uh-huh. inconsistent with church history and uh-huh. the teaching of Jesus. Um, Cause the same Paul that wrote that the authorities are established by God in Romans said in Ephesians that we wrestle against the authorities, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, and he gets jailed and, you know, um, uh, tortured for um, that, that kind of um, uh, fidelity to Jesus. So all that to say is, you know, Martin Luther eventually was called the celebrity endorsement of the death penalty because he saw the state, not just, uh, the executioner, not just as the hand of the state, but actually the hand of God. And you can ordain some really terrible things if you believe that the state can do no wrong. And that's, mm. that's I guess, one of the things that I would say. And even now, you know, I mean, some of us from outside Europe, you go over and you see the state church. You know, like in England, for example, you're like, wait, the queen? Is the head of the church? She's you know? a part of this? <laughs> yeah. like, whoa, you know, and... Uh, I've gotten to be pretty good friends with Justin Welby, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury. So he's, you know, technically the, you know, kind of the Protestant Pope of the Anglican Church or whatever. And, you know, he's re- it's it's a it's a strange thing that we've ended up with, you know. Yeah. So I think we, we need to have a suspicion of power. That goes all the way back to 33 A.D. And even before that, you know, hundreds okay. of years before to the Exodus. Uh, and we see what. Um, those in power are capable of doing. And and it uh, so often is crushing Mm -hmm. the most vulnerable people in our society. And it's why Jesus identifies there, you know, born a refugee, dying an executed criminal on a cross, like, like leaning into the suffering and then teaching us consistently in Jesus's teaching, the health uh, uh, of our society, the health of our faith will be judged. You know, Matthew 25, on right. how we care for the least of these. Mm-hmm. So when Jesus was in need of health care, did we provide it? You know, when uh, 
did we visit him in prison? Did we welcome him when he was an immigrant or refugee? Right. So real, you know, the real test of our society is not how the Dow Jones is doing, but how the least of these are doing, how the most vulnerable folks are mm -hmm. doing. So that's a new litmus test, you know, but there's not any, I, I don't see either political party that their primary concern is for the most vulnerable people in mm -hmm. our world. And even as I look at things like the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that we're to love our enemy, blessed are the peacemakers for they are the children of God, this call to, to peace and to nonviolence. Um, I mean, consistently every president keeps raising the military budget. Um, right. Biden did it, Trump did it, Obama did it, you know. Is it over <laughs> so, 700 billion now? Yeah, I think it's I think over I 800 billion. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, uh, the, so it's, it's just unimaginable, you know, and today in Philadelphia, we have a hundred schools that are closing early because they don't have air conditioning. And, you know, I kind of think of Martin Luther King's powerful line when he said, um, a country that continues to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching a spiritual death. Um, and you know, it's it, that that's a really strange world where we're spending like thirty thousand uh, dollars every minute on militarism. Mm -hmm. It may be even higher than that now, you know. Um, and and yet our schools don't have air conditioning. So you know, there's that old bumper sticker that said, "Won't it be a great day when uh, the schools have everything they need and the military has to have a bake sale to get a bomber?" <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't seen that one. Well, let's say you were walking down um, 14th Street uh, right there in the center of Philly and you saw someone and they actually said out loud to you that they believed that the Constitution was inspired. If you were to pull from your hip, what would be like one of the first things that you would say from your back pocket in response to that? Because I imagine we probably all know people that have that mindset. Maybe they haven't said it out loud, but they all kind of think. Yeah, there's something special about our Constitution, just like how the Bible is special compared to other scriptures. What would you reply? Well, I might ease into it with a little uh, lunch or coffee, but I'd probably, uh, you know, I think I would say, I mean, if we're really honest, even though there's many wonderful aspirations in those documents, you know, right. all people are all men, it says, might as well quote it for what it is. All men are created equal. Um the same folks that are writing that were owning African-American people and selling them on right. street corners. You know, even in these documents, we made a concession that black folks are three fifths human. Um, natives are called savages. Women are not mentioned. Um, so to say that this is a perfect document, which is what I think of when I think that this is inspired, like it is, is it really grieves me to think of that, mm. right? Like mm -hmm. to say that, that these people were um, a paradox, you know, of contradictions that they had some oh, good yeah. aspirations, they had some good aspirations, but they also um, fell short of some of those ideals. I mean, I think that's honest, you know, even mm. equal justice under the law that's, um, you know, embedded on the Supreme Court. That's a great aspiration. Um, mm. But we have to be honest that we're, we're nowhere near that. You know, right now, yeah. Um, yeah. one in every three African-American males, one in three born today can expect to go to prison. I mean, this is the, not about behavior. It's the legacy of hundreds of years of racism um, and inequity of treating people as less than equal. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we have more folks, more African-Americans in prison today than there were enslaved African-Americans in the 1800s. So we've got a long way to go, you know, and, and, and to say that, you know, God can work through the cracks of everything. That's my theology, right? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Is that, that these imperfect human, uh, folks that, yeah. that there, there can be, some some beautiful things that happened in the midst of that um but uh you know i i think we got to really be honest that um that uh, th and this was more i think than a product of their time 
Um, I, I think that okay. there were lot, lots of folks that were resisting slavery, um, including enslaved people, <laughs> that um, saw a different gospel. Um, yeah. and, and to me, that's what this is about, is that it is very dangerous to conflate human-made documents with uh, what I think is, is the you know, divine word of God. And even more, Jesus is the full revelation of God. That's what scripture says. Right. So I even interpret scripture in light of Jesus. Yeah. You know, there's scripture that you can twist and use to say whatever you want. Um, And in the end of the day, the real litmus test is Jesus. This is the full revelation of God. This is God's love with skin on. This is the model we're to follow. And and when scripture seems at odds with Jesus, I'm going to choose Jesus. Yeah. Well, that and that's one of the differences of you can be very biblical, but not very Christ-like. And that's why Christ-likeness is more of a litmus test than whether or not you're being biblical. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I, I do want to say that I don't think that some of these dualisms, they, you know, we don't, we don't, they're, I think that you can love the Bible and love Jesus. You can believe the Bible is the sure. word of God. I yeah. do. Right. Uh-huh. Um, but you can also say the word of God has flesh too. Uh, and, and so, you know, uh, sometimes it's hard to reconcile scripture that even seems at odds with each other on like slavery, for instance, you know? Um, so, so how do you reconcile that? Well, Jesus is the referee, uh, like Jesus really becomes the word made flesh. Right. And, um, and I, you know, I, I do have a high view of scripture as the word of God. Um, and, and, um, and yet there are a lot of people that would say that they are biblical, but they don't seem to act much like Jesus. And Jesus sure. in the end is what it means to be Christian, right? <laughs> like, yeah. If it doesn't look like Jesus, if it doesn't smell like Jesus, then let's not call it Christian. If it's not about welcoming refugees and immigrants and taking right. care of folks on the street, don't call it Christianity. You know, if it's not about the widows and the orphans, uh, and caring for the sick and like th- those things, like then, then let's not call it Christianity. Cause there's a lot of things that, uh, people want to try to camouflage as Christianity, but they don't sound or look like Jesus. And I think that's what American nationalism, uh, can be. It, it can be, mm-hmm. um, sort of its own religion, uh, that, oh, a civil piety, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, that, that's why, you know, some Christians are more committed to the Constitution than they are to the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. You know, and I, I think we have a higher authority than the Constitution that we rely on. And that's uh, Jesus and in, in the scripture. Well, and I, I was having a conversation with, with um, Brian Zond a bit about this, too. And, and it kind of goes to the idea America is great. Babylon. I mean, Tony Campolo says that as well. And it, it might be really helpful to make a distinction. How would you define the difference between kingdom versus empire? And the way that I understand it is empire, the first empires were understood biblically through Pharaoh's Egypt and Babylon and all those. And those are in contrast to the kingdom of God, but they're not to be the same thing. How would you define the difference then? Yeah, so the, 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 why this is tricky is because they were conflated very much together in mm-hmm. the first century. I mean, these were the same concept. Um, even though the kingdom of God, we've kind of spiritualized um, and we don't really ha- think of our government as kingdom. But that's how people thought of it then. Uh-huh. That this, was, this was the reign of God, like yeah. God's reign, God's kingdom, God's dominion. Um, and, you know, um, so the way that I would think of it is may- maybe a way to think of it today is God's dream. What if God's, oh, wow. God's, God's vision and God's dream okay. were on earth as it is in heaven, in North Philadelphia, as it <laughs> is in heaven? What does God's dream look like if, if you know, God had God's way, most perfect will? Um, it wouldn't look like a hundred people dying every day of gun violence. Um, yeah. it, it wouldn't 
I, I think, look like the, the death penalty. It would look like restorative justice, the fact that mercy triumphs over judgment, that, um, you know, th those things. So uh, that's why when Jesus says we're to seek first the reign of God, the kingdom of God, um, it changes the way you live. Because what we've done is we've spiritualized the kingdom to think this is just about heaven. Oh, but absolutely. when you look at Jesus, it's, uh -huh. it's, it's actually not that way. When he's, when he's talking about the kingdom of God, Jesus is talking about it coming on earth as it is in heaven and that we are to actually participate in that. So it's about the transformation of the world and, um, you know, not just going to heaven when we die, but bringing heaven to earth while we live, uh, imagine reimagining the world, uh, not, not accepting it as it is, but building, uh, the world as God dreams of it, uh, to be. So that, that's, a, that changes the way that we live. And that's the danger in some of this, I think, bro, is, um, when people talk about politics, you know, everybody, no one really gets that excited about it. You know, like we're pretty disappointed with all the politicians. Uh -huh. um, and and um, there's a danger in disengaging and just saying, mm -hmm. well, this is just about spiritual things, not the, the stuff of earth, um, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to suggest that loving our neighbor as ourself means that we also care about policies that affect their lives and they ha either allow them to That's flourish right. or not to flourish policies for welcoming immigrants that are more about love than about fear um you know th those sorts of things these are these are spiritual issues gun violence is a spiritual crisis if we mm -hmm. think that mm -hmm. every person's made in the image of god and this is now the largest cause of death of American children, uh, guns. How can you say that you're pro-life and not care about uh, gun violence? So, right. you know, those things, I think, I think the death penalty, too, is very much about our faith, especially when Christians are the biggest defenders of the death penalty, because it raises the question, do we really believe in redemption? Do we believe that right. where sin abounds, grace abounds, that that God's love is bigger than our mistakes? You know, all of this theology. Yeah, <laughs> that's why that's why, you know, I've written books on gun violence and the death penalty, not just because these are important issues, but because I think they reveal a spiritual crisis in the church um, mm. uh, on some of these. So, you know, the word politics actually has the same root as the polites, the, 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 the citizenry, the, the people. Polis. Yeah. Yeah. The polis. Uh, I mean, it's where we get names like, uh, you know, metropolis, um, right. <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, Indianapolis, right. Like oh, the, yeah. the polis, the polis is the people. And, um, and so we're really asking, what does it look like for people to flourish? And laws aren't the only thing. I mean, there, there's, of course. Uh, but, yeah. uh, you, you know, and, and I, that's where Dr. King is really helpful to me on mm -hmm. some of this is Dr. King realized that laws aren't going to solve everything. Um, but he said this, this is Martin Luther King said, a law cannot make you love me, but it can make it harder for you to kill me. That's brilliant. Um, and, right. and, and so, you know, no law can change a racist heart. That's why when people say gun violence is not a gun problem, it's a heart problem. I say it can be both. And God mm -hmm. heals violent hearts, but people protect lives by making it harder for people to kill. And right now we're making it really, really easy for people to kill. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in the civil rights movement, we needed God to heal racist hearts. But we also needed to change laws so that we could swim in the same swimming pools and go to the same colleges and so that black folks could vote and we could be honored as equally human and made in the image of God. Well, I, I think I hear a continuum and and I haven't I've never thought about this before. But on one side, I could see a Christian could say have nothing to do with politics. Right. Because we're only supposed to care about kingdom of heaven, whatever, however they might interpret that. And they might go hands off. And then on the other side, I could see going full Christian nationalist and thinking, but we can legislate the kingdom of heaven here now. And we need to do that. And we need to make sure that the world is just and that the, the laws of the land reflect the laws of the Bible. You know, and I, I see that as a continuum. 
But there seems, is there, what's that healthy middle where you say, we're not going to disengage, but we're not going to say we can force it to happen. Did, do I, yeah, yeah. did I explain that well? Cause I, I, I'm trying to understand the, the spectrum, I guess, of responses. Well, what I would suggest, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, John, too. But I, I, I suggest, you know, we, we do this a little bit in Jesus for President, that a healthy Christian posture is one of thinking about voting and political engagement as damage control. <laughs> oh. So, so rather than <laughs> rather than <laughs> rather than thinking about it as like I'm looking for a savior, you know, like I'm looking for a Republican okay. or Democratic savior, that I'm actually trying to harness the principalities and powers that are hurting oh. people. Um, okay. So, like, I, it's very hard for me to get excited about voting for a commander in chief mm. of the biggest military in the world. At the end of the day, that's what the president of the United States is among other things. Right. Right. Um, there's not many people running on a peace platform, at least in the sense of disarming nuclear weapons right. and defend defunding the Pentagon that are going to win. Right. But if I think of it as damage control, that feels a little bit more authentic to my faith. Um, and it still allows me to be engaged, but properly engaged, you know, and I think that's the yeah. danger in political act action is you can misplace your hope, you know, you can hope and you're going to always be devastated if you think a politician or a party is going to change everything. Um, and, and so that's why I, you know, I love the old hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus yeah. blood and righteousness. All other ground is sinking sand because there's a lot of sinking sand. Um, and, and so, you know, we really declare, uh, that our hope is not in the elephant of the Dem of the Republicans or the donkey of the Democrats. Our hope is in the Lamb of God. Our hope is in Jesus. Now, what I would say is that I I look to Jesus to for my imagination of what the world should look like, and the the last or first, the first or last, the mighty are cast from their thrones, the lowly are lifted. Yeah. The, the the hungry are fed and the rich are sent away empty. That's not Karl Marx. That's uh, the gospel of Luke. That's Mary's Magnificat, right? <laughs> That's our gospel. It's Christmas time um, right there. Yeah. But so like, you know, I, I get a real sense that when Jesus said, uh, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me, that that has a lot of implications about immigration and um, mm -hmm. and I want to work with anyone, regardless of party, to create a safe, um, compassionate way that folks can can come into this country and and a path to citizenship. Right? Um, with gun violence, I want I, I think that that every person's made in the image of God, so I want to do everything we can mm. to reduce gun violence. Um, and it's funny because there's folks that are that are kind of like inconsistent on this. Um, when it comes to abortion, they believe in changing laws. But on gun violence, they say, well, laws won't really do anything. So I yeah. think there's an equilibrium there that I want to, in every circumstance, to have policies that allow life to flourish, um, even on abortion. And I think that's where we need a better conversation. We've held two town halls on abortion. And I think that we can, I care deeply about uh, reducing abortion and the things that cause people to have to be in those situations. Some of them we can't prevent, but when over and over <coughs> financial stability is mm -hmm. listed as one of the biggest um, concerns for a woman facing you know, the possibility of an abortion, um, the, if we care about reducing abortion, then things like childcare and healthcare and, you know, paid leave and things like that from work, all th those are things that we should really begin to think about as well. Not right. just, uh, legislation that's going to make it illegal, you know, in every circumstance. And so I, I, I think that, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a way of thinking about it, you know, as every right. person's made in the image of God, 
Um, let's do what we can to have policies that allow people to flourish and realize that no, no party and no person is going to be perfect. But, um, you know, I'm aligned with Jesus and the values of the gospel, but that doesn't mean I want to create a theocracy either. You know, I think that my faith makes me want to um, love my neighbor as myself, even if they're not a Christian. And so that means allowing mm. folks the right to worship um, and, and things like that. That's why I'm so concerned <coughs> when Christians are clutching for power in a way that would make them oh, the, moral, the moral gatekeepers. Uh, and the religious kind of custodians of of the world, and everywhere that that's happened, it's been absolutely tragic, as we see in Constantine, Constantine and the Crusades, and even the ruins of the state church in many parts mm -hmm. of the world. When right. the church has gained power, it has lost its soul, and it shouldn't surprise us because that's exactly what Jesus said it would happen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and. As you're talking, it actually made me think of um, Ignatius of Loyola. At one point, he says, it's great that you want to change the world. I think the word is actually reform. Great. You want to reform the world? Reform yourself first or everything will be in vain. And it's yeah. like, my goodness, how wonderful. Because it's one thing to try to legislate order into the world when you have no order or beauty within yourself. And I feel like that's always a part of it because repentance has got to start at the root of you, the person, before it can ever happen elsewhere. And that's probably part of the grassroots movement of uh, the Evangelion, the evangel, uh, the good news. But yeah. I'm also thinking that oh, – no, I just lost my train of thought. I forgot. Yeah, I forget. That's too bad. But love is the new law anyways. So it's it's that should be the thing that leads. Oh, I remember. There we go. Uh, my mom was the she was the literacy professor over at Cabrini University across the street from Eastern. And um, even though my brother and I went to Eastern, she said that we were never allowed to visit her on campus. <laughs> yeah. She's like, you need to go have a college experience. Like, OK, anyways. So we were raised really enjoying words. And um, I was thinking one day about just the word integrity. And most people think about the word integrity means you're the same person no matter who you're around or when nobody's looking, you're the same person. But I was trying to think of what well, the opposite. What's the opposite of integrity? I was like, dis disintegrity? And then I realized disintegrate. Hmm. And I was like, oh, obviously the word integrity is connected to the word integrated. And some of what you said just now triggered my mind to think like, are our values about being pro-life integrated across the board? Do I actually think about pro-life in reference to abortion, in reference towards child, my God, gun violence to, to um, execution, to all of these things? It's just, my goodness, can we have some sort of Christian integrity where we want to take these values and actually apply them consistently in every arena. And I feel like that's a part of maybe what Ignatius meant. You want to change the world. You want to see the world have integrity, be integrated and to work together and not be clashing against itself. Because if, if I think about it um, in my own life and, and probably every one of us, we can see, there's parts of my life that work against other parts of my own life. And in order for me to be consistent, I need to reconcile with those disintegrated parts. And I feel like America's got a lot of disintegration, a lot of places where it's working against itself. And that's not helping, obviously, you know. Yeah, that's a good word. I think I got. I took a few notes over there, man. Uh, I'm, I'm finishing. I'm finishing a book on uh, that's very much related to that. It's called Rethinking Life, and the the subtitle is mm -hmm. Reclaiming the Sacredness of Every Person. And and it, and it really is about not just seeing these as single issues, but having a comprehensive uh -huh. value for life, right? Um, that uh, some some folks have said pro life from womb to tomb. You know that that uh, yeah not just being pro-birth on abortion and 
forgetting about life afterwards, but really like, what does it mean to champion life? And also, what does it look like to proclaim the dignity of people who have been historically dehumanized? Wow. Um, uh, so my, my friend, Alexia Salvatierra, she's a wonderful, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, scholar and activist. And um, she points to that version, that, that, that verse in uh, Corinthians, it talks about the body of Christ and one part suffers. We all oh, suffer, absolutely. you know, we're all one part, we're one body. but yeah, it's integrated. That, that's uh-huh. what made me think of it, man. But then she says, it's interesting at the end, we missed this beauty, beautiful part where uh, it, it says that uh, those parts of the body that have been oh, okay. uh, desecrated are given special honor. Special um, honor. And and she calls it God's affirmative action. You know, that we're affirming what history for hundreds of years has uh, not confirmed. Um, and that's why I think it's, it, it's such a helpful way to think about Black Lives Matter, right? Is, is that because the the, the re- rebuke of that has often been, you know, all lives matter. All lives matter. Yeah. Right. And why would you specify that? Well, the reason that you would specify that is because we need to give special honor to the parts of the body that have been dishonored. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that white lives don't matter or that black lives matter more or something like that. But we need to be particular in affirming the people that have uh, been crushed or are being crushed like right now. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. for folks in Israel and Palestine, you know, you know, it might be saying Palestinian lives matter. Right. Uh, for some, for maybe for some Palestinians, it's saying, you know, Jewish lives matter, Israeli lives matter, you know. But um, I think whoever it is that we've dehumanized, we've got to be, you know, become especially sensitive to their humanity and to the image of God in them. And that's why, you know, your your wonderful uh, three minute sermon on integrity um and and disintegration is so helpful, man, because if we can build a better ethic of life that affirms that image of God in every person, it makes it a whole lot harder oh, yeah. uh, to be comfortable with other, with someone else's suffering. Well, and, and maybe a good summary or, or close up could be this. I first stumbled upon that idea in some ways because of Ephesians, you know, I mean, obviously go back to the Bible, but it says that, uh, it's all about the gathering up of all things under the headship of Christ. And that's, I hear that is like the great integration of all things. All things are being drawn together and need to be given under the proper authority. And it, it seems as though maybe to go back, it's like we can't try to gather things everywhere under the American constitution as if that's the end all be all. This is how it's going to be established. If there's a way that we can actually let Christ speak to all these things more than government, then, man, I think I want it. It might be Howard Thurman. I think it's I think it's him. He talks about how in in some churches, when there's the the American flag and the Christian flag both in the same sanctuary building, an interesting thing to pay attention to is the elevation. Are they at the same height? Is one taller than the other? Because if anything, it should absolutely be the Christian flags taller because that should be able to throw shade on the other one. Mm. I was mm. like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's, well, it is interesting, you know, bringing up the flag in the altar too, because I, mm. I, I think um, any of us who have a vision that we are born again uh, should have some uh, discomfort with having a U.S. flag alone on the altar. I've suggested that churches that really want a flag should have all, you know, nearly yeah. 200 nations flags that are um, in the congregation and uh, maybe not even the U.S. at the center. You know, we we've yeah. put, the, put the most hurting country at the time at the center or something. But anyway, wow. I think that, the, you know, an easier solution is just to realize that we have a, an identity that is much deeper than nationality. Mm. Uh, and, you know, before the broadcast, we were talking just a little bit about uh, patriotism. And I think that, that why I find it so difficult is what, what there's people that have distinguished between nationalism and patriotism. Um, okay. But I think what's difficult is we're still um, allowing our geography to often 
uh, limit the boundaries of our love and compassion. And um, I I love the old saying, um, a love for our own people is not a bad thing, but love doesn't stop at a border. It's a powerful line, you know? So um, this is the, the power, I think, of the, the Jesus's vision that often gets kind of becomes cliche and spiritualized, but that we're to be born again is literally that we are to have a vision for love and humanity and even family that is bigger than biology, um, bigger than nationality. Uh And so if someone's suffering on the other side of our border, it's just as tragic as if it were my own flesh and blood, my own mom or dad or grandmother or child. Uh, And that changes the way that we think about things. If we think like this is not us and them based on our geography, um, but our common humanity. Uh, And we have people in this country who I think um, are standing against love. And I think they're standing against the kingdom of God. Mm. Uh, We've got other people in other countries, even people that don't share my faith that are standing on the side of love. And I think that's where Jesus would say, if they're not sure. against us, they're for us. Let's stand together. <laughs> and uh, you know, I'll close, John, with I, uh, the Mother Teresa, you know, who's been a real um, great uh, teacher for me. One of the things that she said is sometimes our biggest problem is that the circle we put around our family is too small. It's such a powerful line that the circle we put wow. around our family is too small. And we sort of put a little circle around our love and compassion um, that, you know, what what would happen if someone, you know, did this to your wife or, and then you say, they attacked us. This is about our country. And, you know, after 9-11, we got this hyper-nationalism. But if we, if we think bigger than that, anything that hurts another person is hurting someone made in the image of God. Mm. It doesn't matter if they live in Iraq or if they live in, uh, you know, New York City in the World Trade Center. Like if their life is crushed, it, it crushes the heart of God. And uh, so let's keep widening the circle there of you. our love that we might love as big as God loves. Yeah, man. That's lovely. Well, Shane, uh, thank you for your time this morning. You're a special sure, guy, man. man. It's really cool. I really enjoy this. Great to be with you. We'll do it again soon, man. Yeah. And uh, God bless everything, man. Thank you.